Hey, thanks for tuning in. My name is Scarlett, and I am the founder of Women's March San Diego at UCSD. To kickstart our podcast series, I wanted to discuss something that a lot of us women and men are sometimes ashamed to talk about in public, which is sexual assault and harassment. I have brought in Jin Ho as my co-host to talk with me about this topic. For our guest speaker, I couldn't think of a better person. She is a defender of gender equity and health based in San Diego, who collaborates with different organizations globally, Dr. Anita Raj. Hi, yes, I'm a professor at UC San Diego. I am professor of medicine. I'm professor of education studies. I am fortunate enough to have a Tata Chancellor Endowed Chair on Society and Health. And uh, I'm very proudly the director of the Center on Gender Equity and Health. And I'm very excited to speak with all of you today about the role of women's leadership and and what uh, COVID-19 has done for women's positioning and for how women's leadership has helped build back um, some of the negative impacts of the pandemic. Thank you so much for being here with us, Dr. Raj. Um, we, we have known Me Too um, has, has been brought up through social media and everywhere, but um, surprisingly enough, it, it continues and even more so now during the pandemic. Um, how, how is the pandemic now that everyone is inside and there's not a lot of people outside, how is it still continuing even more so now? So a lot of what people discuss about Me Too is are, it would be things that uh, include both what happens in public spaces and what happens in private spaces, the kind of sexual harassment that you might face in, in public forums. Well, that has been more limited in many ways because we aren't in public forums as much. However, we are now in increasing isolation in private circumstances. And in those private circumstances, the vulnerability that uh, in particular women and girls face to, uh, for violence, violence against people, violence from people they know, their partners, um, potentially family members, neighbors, that seems to have gone up. And it's particularly been the case we feel in, in the situation of partner violence, um, domestic violence, where it's violence coming from partners. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one, certainly the isolation, uh, the opportunity and the vulnerability for someone who's been isolated is, is all the greater the stressors of the pandemic. Um, so not only are you vulnerable to, to violence occurring, but the stressors that can heighten um, agitation in households that can result in violence are, are all the greater. And um, you know, people are less likely to uh, call in services because in certain circumstances, because entry into the home to provide protection can also be entry into the home um, with the virus. And we're definitely turning the corner on the pandemic. We, we are not seeing sort of the, the levels of increases and we actually are seeing declines in some places, but that doesn't mean that people aren't continuing to try to be safe. And that doesn't mean that the stressors that are, are resulting, the financial stressors, the social stressors, stressors, the isolation aren't persisting in ways that, that are keeping those who have been affected by violence increasingly vulnerable. I, I know that some people feel like it doesn't apply to them because they, they um, it's their partner. So they say, that's my husband and it's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe this is actually true, correct? Yeah, there's, you know, we, 
so I, I work a lot in public health, but also, you know, have worked a lot with social services. There are behaviors that occur in households, in communities that are harmful. And we are not supportive of harms and impacts of harms. And um, when there is abuse, and sometimes that can be emotional abuse, it won't leave the scar, but it's still there. That is not something that has to happen in the course of a relationship. And I think we need to do a lot more in um, building awareness, particularly if people have come from families where that has been normalized. We need to build awareness that actually there's a lot of demonstrations of what makes a healthy relationship. A healthy relationship is, it's about trust. It's about safety. It's about respect. It's about not feeling that you are under the control of the other person. And if these are the issues that you are feeling in your relationship, we just ask you to sort of take a step back and learn a little bit more. There's lots of wonderful resources. There's an organization known as CCS here in San Diego that can provide you with resources. Um, CCS.org, you can, you can get online and, and understand what are the aspects of what is an unhealthy or potentially an abusive relationship and what are aspects that are healthy and where do you fall? Because you have the right and you should have a relationship that brings out the best in you, where you get to be that, bring out the best in the person that you're with and where you're happy and supported by each other. Yeah, definitely. Trust and respect is, is the major issue um, going on um, that a lot of people feel that it's it's just because they're there that they should endure the disrespect and they don't know that they're being disrespected. So how can we educate people more on that and like denormalize what has been normalized through a lot of years um I know that there's been a lot of cultures where it's like women just you just stay at home and that's what you do and you just take care of the husband and you know that's all you have to do kids and husband um is there any way to denormalize these um cultural ideas um that were from the past that we can help people now yeah. So, you know, a lot of times people are so, this is my culture. This is what it is. And, and, you know, I think the thing about culture is there's just very beautiful and wonderful aspects of each of our cultures. We know with great diversity, we have great mm -hmm. representation of beauties that come from uh, each culture that that's part of our lives. Um, but that doesn't mean that every aspect of your culture or your history is what is best for you or your family. And I think it's really important that, or, or your community, right? Um, and I think it's really important to reflect on how we can take what are wonderful elements of our culture and how we can seek to potentially alter those elements of our culture that may continue to be in our lives that are harmful to us, or if not harmful, holding us back. I remind everyone there was a time where women couldn't get an education. You know, UCSD is fortunately far too new to have ever excluded people based on sex or, or, um, or, or other types of social characteristics. Thank goodness. And, and certainly we're adamantly opposed to that today, both legally and, and just socially and emotionally. But we have to remember that we reside in a culture where that was acceptable. And so, you know, 
the idea of culture change, we don't have to alter all aspects of the culture, but to critically think about what brings us value and we can build our strengths upon and what creates harms and we can alter in our lives and our families and our communities to reduce or eliminate those harms. That is what we should be spending our time thinking about. I'll give you an example um, from my own life. Uh, so my grandparents uh, on my father's side and my mother's side, the, the, my grandmothers both married as minors. They were, uh, one grandmother was 13 and the other grandmother was 15 and they both married men over the age of 18. And today there are some people who discuss this issue and are like, that's pedophilia. And it's like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but you're also calling my grandfather a pedophile and that's not very comfortable to me. <laughs> and, um, and so recognizing that at that time, I think that there were enormous vulnerabilities both my grandmothers faced, one at 13 marrying someone 18, one at 15 marrying someone 25. Um, I hope I got those ages right. <laughs> um, that, you know, th there were vulnerabilities I, that I'm not, I cannot deny that that was, you know, th that absolutely was the case. And at the same time, they were able to build a good marriage, a good family, a good life. That doesn't mean those harms didn't exist. So when my mother and father got married, they were well into their twenties. And when I got married, I was well into my twenties and I married someone who was just over 30 <laughs> and my niece just got married. And she, so she's the next generation and she's 31. So, they, you know, um, and my daughter who's about 21 now is like, oh no, I'm getting married at 31. So it, you know, there's aspects of culture change that are really about choice as well. You know, you can make that choice and, and choice in, in, in the time in which you live. And that choice needs to, to be choices that help support you, not just to be safe, but to provide you with opportunities. You know, for me, for, for my niece, for my daughter, like we were like, well, we're finishing school first, you know? And, and school wasn't even available at a certain point for my grandmothers. And so part of its culture, part of its time, part of its personal choice, and part of it's just, you know, feeling that you can support the progress that you want and the progress and the safety that you want for yourself, your family, your community. I agree. I, I, I agree in, in the importance of school. I, I myself am a first generation and um, mm -hmm. I know that culturally uh, my mom wanted to get um, her education. And back then it was a lot of um, women stay at home. So I, I definitely agree on the importance because it, it gave me more of a voice, um, educating myself about other things as well. But um, I do know that a lot of students um, do face some um, sexual assault and harassment on campus. Um, I myself will share a story that it happened to me. And when I went to seek help um, on campus, um, it wasn't at UCSD, it was a different campus. Um, and the person who was quote unquote helping me told me, why did you put yourself in that situation? And for the longest time, I thought that it was my fault. So then I decided to deny that it happened. But my question to you is how can we help those people that are being turned away or, or feel like they're not being heard um, 
since, you know, seeking help is already a big step and it's a hard one, how can we actually go forward and move on on helping and raising their voices? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I have, I have very strong feelings about this. Look, uh, if people want to go through a, a legal process, they need to be supported to go through a legal process. And in that legal process, then there will be a need for proof or explanation. And, and that is going to be part of the, the, the experience of that process. At the same time, I feel very strongly that if someone discloses to you, when anyone discloses to me, I believe them. I simply believe them. We're not talking about the person who did this. We're not talking about what we're going to do with the person who did this. At this moment, there is someone who is expressing an experience where they have feel they have felt harmed, damaged, violated. And my place is simply to believe them. And I think that's one of the most important things that we can do as people talk to us, because most people don't tell anybody. I also want to highlight something else, Scarlett, but since you've brought up the fact that you're a first-generation student and, and that, you know, for your parents, you know, many times in the case of first-generation students, and not j- female first-generation students, and not just first-generation students, sometimes it's even that first generation to go away to college rather than live at home. These are the fears your parents have right? And so there you are, you have an experience and you are so scared to tell because it could wipe away your educational opportunity as your family wants to keep you safe, which is completely understandable. And at the same time, there you are on campus with someone who did this to you. And now you don't know who might do it and who might not, and you don't have faith. And how do you focus on your education? How do you focus on your learning? when you don't feel safe, frankly, in your own home, because our campus should be your home. I think it's incredibly important that one, we believe, two, there's not a questioning. I don't know what happened with the services that you were provided. It doesn't make any sense to me. I, if you were comfortable, I definitely would let people know at the <laughs> university that this occurred. You can do it anonymously. I think it's important because people can only improve if they understand when, when they potentially inadvertently did something that harmed somebody. Um, but oh my goodness, I just, compassion is just, compassion and kindness, I'm, I'm in a, a very strong place of recognizing, you know, we as an academic institution, we're here to teach you, we're here to foster an environment uh, of learning, we're here to learn from you. But none of that can happen in, in an environment where you don't feel safe. And I think it's incredibly important for both, if you, if you will, for the students and the faculty to have a sense of compassion and kindness. When we make mistakes as faculty, please let us know and give us second chances. As administrations, please let us know and give us second chances because we want, we want to do the right thing. And this is not always clear to us. Um, But I think that at a minimum, everybody who chooses to come forward, we need to ensure that they are believed and they are supported. And there are support services on campus. It is hard to talk to people. It's hard to tell people. We need to believe you, we need to support you, and we need to help you continue 
to have your education come first and foremost. It's not to negate what happened, but at the end of the day, what we want is we want you to have the best quality education we can give you. And we don't want these kind of experiences to take that away from you. Thank you. So, um, I, I know that uh, there, there's some services. Can you, can you elaborate what other services for students that are hearing um, on campus right now? Yeah, yeah, there's, um, so, so uh, I, I think the best thing is for me to make sure and put all the right names because sometimes the names change, <laughs> but there are services, there's mental health support services, which are distinct from the services around campus sexual assault. Um, I do want to recognize, and I, I'm so appreciative that you talked about uh, sexual harassment and assault, because so many times our, our students don't um, necessarily the, like, negate the experiences of, of, of harassment, but harassment can feel extremely physically threatening, even if there was no physical contact. So just to encourage people to use the services that they feel best, um, I will say that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be frank, uh, there, technically there is some mandated reporting on campus. Um, some faculty, uh, not all faculty are, are fully aware that the, that there is a mandated, uh, reporting requirement and some faculty choose not to adhere to it. And I'll probably get in trouble for that, but it's a choice that some of us make primarily because if a student doesn't let us doesn't want us to disclose. It's a pretty hard decision for a faculty to make to go and, and report it. There are Title IX services. Um, one thing just to be really conscious of is I think, you know, there's a to please, please go online and, and learn about these services yourself. Because if you disclose, there are certain circumstances where that might be um, taken to others. So, you know, there's also the option of disclosing off campus. So I, I, I think it's really important to let yourself be as informed as possible about what's available. And what I'll do is, um, I apologize that I didn't have these ready to go. I'll put, I'll put together, I'll put together a list of services. Seeing as how still a, a person was still a, um, a victim of this. Um, we we need more women to be advocates about this. And seeing you um, also going through college and getting education, using that as a tool and something for you to advocate for all women and even men, because I know men also are victims of sexual assault or harassment. Um, how how can us women in leadership help? How can a woman be an advocate? Can, can you give us your story on how you ended up um, being uh, in this career, in this path, and how um, women in leadership have impacted and helped these victims? Um, so my leadership is not as much, you know, directly tied to services. It's more in research. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the nature of the leadership um, my leadership path. Um, and uh, I think it will, even among students, will resonate because, of course, that path begins pretty early in your life. Mm -hmm. um, I also want to highlight, I'm so glad you mentioned that this can happen to men. Um, I, I also want to mention that we know that these kinds of, you know, many of these forms of violence can disproportionately affect our um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, you know, non-binary populations. 
and uh, of students and and that you know their voices can also be crushed because you now not only have the stigma attached to these kinds of violations, but also attached to, you know, um, homophobia and transphobia. And so bringing your voice forward, we, we so respect that because we know it can be very, very difficult. Um, okay, so my story, uh, my story starts at a place that most of our UCSD students have not come from, which is Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> I was- That's far. I was, yes. Uh, <laughs> A foreign land, Jackson, Mississippi. There are more Indians. I'm of Indian heritage. There are far more Indians on this campus than there are Jackson, Mississippi natives. Um, so my, my story begins in Jackson, Mississippi. I was born in 1970. I was born during the civil rights movement. My father taught an historically black university. I, I came from a, you know, a traditional Indian family. I, I lived in a, in a rather traditional uh, environment, but I was the first child born um, my, I have an older brother and sister, both born in India. I was the first child born in the U.S. Uh, the first of the family. My father was the first of the, his family to, to emigrate to the U.S. And so I was the first of our uh, extended family to be born here. And I grew up with my parents saying, she's the only one who could be president. And I thought, eh, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'd like to be president. I'll have to think about it. And <laughs> the notion of being brought up uh, and Scarlett, I cannot help but think this is a story that may resonate with you. The notion of being brought up surrounded by people who thought I could do anything that just didn't look at, and granted, this is my family. They didn't look at the color of my skin. They didn't look at the fact that I was female. They were like, she's amazing. <laughs> everything. And, and what an enormously fortunate foundation that is because when, when, and, and it's something that I, I recognize and I never take for granted. And I'm a firm believer in, in supporting children, you know, from birth to early childhood for that reason. And I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of strength and resiliency that forms that foundation is an important time. So, you know, meanwhile, did I experience sexism and racism? And did I have my own experiences in, in high school? Not so much in high school. In, uh, sexism, racism in high school, elementary school, absolutely. Uh, sexual harassment, uh, more abusive sort of circumstances in, in college and grad school. Um, all of that, all of that held, through, held true for me. Um, but, you know, I, I, I absolutely think it was just having parents who just had this absolute faith in me and, um, and family. I'm the youngest in the family. And so, like, I just had this family that was just enormously supportive. And so one of the things I think is really important is in, in the lives of people who want to pursue leadership, um, it, it's not, it, if, if, if it's not your family, that's okay. Surround yourself with people who believe in you. You really like work hard to build your life. And that's one of the reasons, you know, that's a huge part of being in a healthy relationship is mm -hmm. bringing out the best to be in each other is about believing in each other. So surround yourself with the people who believe in you. And then quite frankly, I had no idea that I, like, it's not that I didn't experience, you know, sexism, racism, um, harassment. It's not, but, but I, you know, I once said this to people, like, I just kind of like moved it, like just, okay that happened, I have to move through it, that happened, I have to move through it. And um, I didn't like, uh, if you count, I think most of would say this, if you count the number of times you're sexually hurt, no one, no one does that, because it just happened too often. 
Like it's just happened too much. And so to a great extent, you're just kind of like batting it off. So it doesn't hold you back as much as you can until something very severe happens. Um, and I think for me, I think, uh, you know, there were various points of hitting a wall, but I think one of the major points of hitting a wall, there was a point in my career where it was very clear that I just, I wasn't advancing and it didn't make sense to me. And I wasn't being paid fairly and I wasn't getting equal opportunity for positioning and everything on my paper, everything on paper was there and actually was stronger than some of the people who were out, out able to out advance me. And, um, you know, initially I had kids and I was like, well, maybe it's just that I'm not doing enough, but then the kids got a little older and I looked at my paper, you know, you get, cause we keep our CVs, we see what everybody has. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Excuse me. I think there's a bit of discrimination happening in this moment. <laughs> and, um, and I have to tell you, I, I left the institution and, and that was scary. And I would say rather brave of me. Um, and I, I think this is true of the people who choose to leave circumstances or people in their lives in the same way. Like, it's not that it was horrible. It was just, I couldn't, I couldn't go to the next level in an environment where I don't know if they didn't believe in me or what, I don't know what the problem was. And I found an environment where they would. And I, I came to UC San Diego and I don't, I'm not trying to say that that's going to be everybody's experience here. I mean, different places work for different people, but here it was just like this, this faith. And, and then uh, I had, I had a woman. I, so I've, I've had wonderful mentors. My, one of my greatest mentors is a man. And I, I would say, grab your mentors where you can. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have a woman mentor, but I did have a woman mentor here, and I'll mention her by name since people might know her, Stephanie Strathdee. And, um, and she was a leader and she gave me some guidance and some pointers and would toss my name up in various important places. And I think I just was, I was given the opportunity to build my reputation and visibility. And we created a center and I worked my butt off <laughs> and, um, and now our center, you know, we collaborate with UN Women. We collaborate with um, the World Bank. We collaborate, you know, we, we collaborate with um, ministries of health across nations. Uh, we collaborate with certainly universities from all over the world. And, and we are truly a world-class center. And we are largely women-run. And I think it really was just having a little bit of space and a little support to be like, and honestly, it was the space and support was just basically like, let them go to see, let, let them go. Let's see what they can do. And uh, I guess that's how I feel about my career is I feel like I continue to advance. And I, my goal in supporting the next generation is, you know, I'm here with a safety net, but we're, I'm letting you go. Let's see what you can do. And Man, they surprise me every day, every day. There is, it is beautiful to watch the next generation, your generation. I can't do the things they do. They do all this coding. 
machine learning. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand it. <laughs> and it's, it's beautiful. And now, you know, they're two of my doctoral students. They produced machine learning reports on the COVID impacts uh, in multiple countries on both reproductive care and reproductive health needs was one. And the other was misogyny online. The, uh, that on, online misogyny was increasing. And I got to tell you, like, that's the genius that is the students here. Um, so yeah, like, my God, what are you doing standing in the way of a woman or anybody? When you discriminate, you just, you lose the potential for something amazing to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, I, I'm glad you had a mentor that actually helped you. And, you know, a lot of people just need a little bit of belief and support and then so that they can be able to run with it but it's very hard when someone puts a an obstacle on you and you feel like everyone is better than you just because they're they have some sort of other benefit that you don't that it's not necessarily something that you don't have like you were qualified but just because you weren't a man or like a certain race you were being held back which was very unfair and I'm actually very proud of you for for doing the scary thing and leaving everything back and saying, you know what, I deserve better. I am better and I will do um, better by me. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, Scarlett. I'm so proud of you that you went to college and you were the first one to go to college. It's going to, I'm telling you, my father did this and now the, the, the family is full of not just college graduates, people with all kinds of graduate degrees. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was scary, but <laughs> I, I enjoy education and I, I'm, I really love to learn. So I decided to just stick through it, even though something horrible happened to me, I just kept on going. I mean, that's the only way you move forward. Thank you. Because now we get all the gifts you're going to create. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. And Jinho, we're not talking to you as much, but you as well. I, our students, they're amazing. Jinho has been a big help uh, in, in helping me with um, this Women's March and uh, creating this podcast and um, being uh, my support and being able to contact you. So Jinho, thank you as well. <laughs> I mean, I'm learning a lot. As I said, like uh, one of the interesting things that came up was that as a male, I like, uh, I, it's kind of painful to admit, but we kind of joke that there are false accusations out there, but I realize actually men are more prone to sexual harassment than sexual assault, which is really shocking because that's kind of counterintuitive to me. And like, uh, just um, looking at different works from you and all these things, discussing with Scarlett and how to produce this podcast, like I learned a lot that I am really at a relative privilege among the people that are in the community. Well, and, and honestly, the, the male voices are so important. Male voices are so important for other males to hear that kind of statement and what really constitutes sexual harassment or assault and why it's not funny. Um, can you also tell us more globally your work and how um you've um expanded like all the way through like russia india and 
and being able to help women globally. Yeah, thank you for asking that. So my very first international project was actually in Russia with this male mentor who, um, and I was pregnant at the time we were writing the grant, but like, I, I have to say, I just adore, I'll mention his name too, Jeffrey Salmon. I just adore him because it was, you know, he just constantly validated my capacities. And at the same time, uh, recognized that I had family responsibilities and was always so supportive of figuring out with me how I could do the work internationally while still maintaining my family responsibilities. And, and that was, that was such a gift because what that allowed me to do is understand that that was even possible. Right. Um, so I'm of Indian heritage and I then had the opportunity to start working in India and oh my goodness, uh, you're, you know, it's my family. It's, it's my heart is there. Uh, I, um, I've been stuck, not, not uh, stuck in San Diego. It's beautiful here, but I've not been able to travel to all the field sites and all the places, you know, all my, to see all my colleagues in different countries and I, I miss India most of all. And I'm not going to lie to you. I'd love to say that, oh, I miss the people and the, I miss the food. I miss the food so, so, so much. I'm desperately, I just, I just want a real Indian meal in India. Um, so how do I do it? I, you do it with collaborators. You do it with wonderful, wonderful colleagues from around the world. I think one of the mistakes that people make, and, and sometimes you may have heard some of these mistakes made by political leaders is that, um, oh, these countries, whatever kind of countries, they, they're terrible places. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, we, we work all over the world and we just get to work with these scientists who are brilliant, brilliant. And so just like working with the students, like you just get to learn all the time. My, my father, who uh, sadly passed away, as you know, not very long ago, he would always say, what other profession pays you to learn all the time? And, and that's definitely how I feel. So it, it can only be done through collaboration. It can only be done, you know, in the same way we talked about healthy relationships with healthy relationships of collaboration. We work really hard um, and it, it, I think comes naturally to us because we're just our nature within the center, the people that are faculty within the center kind of operate this way. Historically research collaborations with um, low and middle income countries relative to like North America or um, Western Europe, it was very colonial in nature because many of these places we work with were former colonies. But we really strive to kind of think about how to make this work in a way that doesn't, this people use the term decolonializing. I don't know if we fully achieved decolonializing. It's, it's quite a entrenched structure, but we work very hard in a way that like, it is truly collaboration. I mean, we're all equal scientists and some of us have um, different capacities. So like um, we have entree to get a certain funding that my collaborators at IIPS, which is the International Institute for Population Sciences, they do demography in India, but they have the expertise in demography and then the on the ground capacities to be able to collect the data that we want to be able to analyze. But as far as the scientific capacities of like asking the data, the questions, what kind of data do we want to collect? Equal ground. Um, everybody is an equal collaborator. And that makes that makes it possible to work in multiple countries is just wonderful collaborators, wonderful relationships. 
getting to eat the food locally because it really makes you want to keep going back. <laughs> Those are probably the big things. So, so I know you, you did some work in India and um, that you were, uh, you were working hard with your collaborators to actually um, make uh, rape illegal. And, you know, um, I know that at some point you, you hit a wall and it didn't really like pass, but what have you done to continue to fight for it? Um, Because I know the the fight is never over and the the whole point is to keep on like pushing back and I know it's hard, but I just wanted to know what other things possibly that we can do to help push back. So, so, so just one, one clarification. So rape is, rape is illegal in India, but, but marital you're right it's a it's a it's a nuanced difference but an important one so so that form of sexual violence in penetration that is is forced penetration that is absolutely illegal however if it is your husband it doesn't qualify under the rape law it can qualify under the domestic violence law but many of us are concerned that by not recognizing it under the rape law you're basically, perhaps unintentionally, suggesting that rape can't happen in marriage. Now, uh, I am enough older than you, quite a bit older than you. So that actually was the case in states in the, in, in the United States as well in the 90s. And we just have to keep pushing. You just have to keep, keep pushing. Um, I'm not a, as much of a policy scholar as I am, a, um, demo- I do more of the epidemiologic study. So what we try to do is just really highlight what are what are the what are the what is the uh, health and social impacts of this. Um, we try to rec- bring recognition to the fact that most of these types of you know a, a forced penetration are happening in the context of marriage, not outside of marriage. So by negating that, you're really actually um, under recognizing the scope and scale of the problem. Uh, we also know it, it, so in the 2007 data, about 1%, less than 1% of people who had any form of violence, women who had any form of sexual physical violence reported to the police. Now we've got it up to a whopping 2%. <laughs> so, so we try, so, so on one hand, it's, it's really interesting. And I think it's an interesting study, not just for India, but in the US. We know that most people don't go to criminal justice services. We know that a lot of people who have these experiences, they want to disclose, they want to have support. They certainly want it to stop. Um, they want to feel safe but they're not necessarily ready to take it into the criminal justice system. And, and from our perspective, we have to respect the decision. Look, some, whoever has had this happen to them, a choice was already being taken from them. I, I don't believe they need to have other choices taken from them. Um, so it's kind of a complicated thing to talk about the, you know, what do we wanna do? I, I think I have moved and while you know, I definitely feel aligned with the idea that we need to recognize these kinds of crimes as crimes. At the same time, I think that relying on the criminal justice system to have impact, I, I just don't believe that that's um, a solution that will have like broad effects. So I, I really think we need to have, it, it really is gonna require societal change. It's gonna require societal change. And, and as you know, I'm so appreciative with your honesty of saying, oh, you know, there's jokes and stuff. That's the kind of stuff like, you know, jokes, if, you, if you're not going to joke about 
uh, and some people do, but <laughs> you're not going to joke about genocide. If you're not going to joke about, um, you know, cold-blooded murder, I would say this is one like we need to move in, <laughs> into that, yeah, into yeah, that yeah. realm. So I think, you know, I think that the societal change is definitely happening. I also think that there's a lot of confusion. You know, I think a lot about this with college students. Um, you know, what's okay and what's not okay for many, this is a time when your sexual activity is, is starting or, or there's a greater closeness with a sexual activity, maybe your first relationship. And so kind of knowing that, I think one of the key pieces is just really that communication is so important. Being able to say no, being able to say not right now, being able to say, I don't think so, I'm not sure, but let's maybe not do it at this moment since I'm not sure, <laughs> you know, <laughs> having these gradients. And certainly at the moment you are being sexually harassed on the street and you some like being able, cause we just head down when I, when it was me, head down, walk as fast as you can. Being able to turn to someone and say, that is wrong, stop it. You know, something along those lines that, you know, I, my, my daughter had an experience when she was in ninth grade and she was walking, she's in La Jolla. She was walking from La Jolla High School to the La Jolla Library. Not exactly a neighborhood where I had any thoughts of any risk to her. There was a group of boys who bothered her, who, you know, I think said things like nice hips in that, you know, really clever way one does. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and it was a group of boys and, and after that, she never walked to the library. So when one moment that they probably didn't remember, she stopped walking in the library. I think it's time for boys to start understanding what they're doing. I don't think they know. I also, as much as I had to talk with her, she felt gross and shamed and like, what was she wearing? By the way, she was wearing her Harry Potter t-shirt and jeans. Um, <laughs> Just, you know, it has nothing to do. She could have been wearing a short skirt. She could have been wearing Harry Potter t-shirt. It didn't matter, you know? It's not what you're doing, but it's hard to not feel like it was what you did, as you yourself said, Scarlett. But the bottom line is, it wasn't even for you. Those guys were doing that for each other. It, kind of, it, it really, you were just a pawn in their stupid, stupid way of socializing. And, the, and, and I think in every group of boys where that happens, there's always at least one boy who's like, I don't like this, but I'm not gonna say anything. And I'll go, huh, to make it feel like I'm there. But I the most, cause I don't wanna feel uncomfortable. We gotta get more boys to be like, it's stupid, stop it. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And that to be the cool thing. And I say this as the mother of a boy who Definitely, I'm sure has been one of the I, not saying stuff when people said something stupid. <laughs> you know, nobody. I think that you know one of the big things with with boys is also I just don't think I think a lot of them don't know. They just don't know. So communication, I think, is really important, and education is really important, and hearing from boys, and maybe not you know. In the moment, you're so angry as a girl. Like, it's probably good to get educated before you have the person turn on you with that level of anger because it makes people defensive. And I'm not saying you don't have every right to be angry, but that defensiveness never feels very good as a response to your anger. It's so frustrating. Um, so yeah, like early education, 
speaking your mind and respecting the nose and having internal voices with these when these events occur from their own peers to be like, hey man, yuck. <laughs> yeah. Not cool. Not cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I had Not a cool. similar experience <laughs> where I actually had to have a a guy walk me. He was my friend, but I had to yep. have him walk me because I didn't feel safe yep. to walk by myself. <laughs> Not even with a group of girls because I was like, yep. nope. So it just and how it just, limiting. Yeah, like, it's like yeah. why am I depending on a man that like you know? It's just I should feel safe, and mm. it wasn't anything that I did wrong or anything. But I just um, you know I took it upon myself like it was probably my fault or or something that I was walking alone. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So my daughter did that with her brother, and I want you to bear in mind that you you know how boys and girls like they grow at very different times. So my daughter was in ninth grade. She had reached her full whopping capacity of five foot two. And her brother maybe was four, eight. He was in sixth grade. And so she would make him walk with her if she really had to go to the library. And like, let's just take a moment about that. The worst part about that entire thing is it probably worked. (laughs) Come on, guys. It's a really powerful message, like, um, to know all these things. But I have to think, like, there are people who's going to be defensive. They're going to be, like, yeah. like, they don't really get why it's important. Like, um, how, what's your advice or, like, any suggestions on, like, how to, you know, foster the discussion or, like, how to make them think differently? Because, like, there are people who will listen, but there are people who will be, like, no. Like, this is what I think. Like, how do you talk to these people? Oh, Jin Ho, that's like the biggest, in this political climate, that is the biggest (laughs) question we all want to have an answer to. Um, I I definitely feel that um, anger and blaming and name calling is like, and it's so instinctive. It's just not, it's, it's not useful. (laughs) Um, And I also think that voice, trusted voices within groups are often the ones that need to be giving voice. Uh, and, and so that's really important. I think it's giving strengths to, you know, I, I think about it with, um, with sexual harassment because oftentimes it's a group of boys together. And there's, I, I often think it may be the minority, there's probably one that's not okay with it. We think this about gang rapes as well, right? And, the problem is the loudest, strongest voices in these contexts are the ones who gain control. And the smallest voices are the ones that don't have it. So I, I, don't, I don't have a solution, but I've been wondering a lot about how we can take those people because they're the ones whose ears we can bend who are in there and support their strength and positioning to give voice to these ideas because we're not again it's not about changing culture it's about stopping harm yeah i, I agree. agree it's uh it just takes one sentence like it's not have to be like a full essay like why i think it is wrong it's like, like just say hey stop it and like they'll be like okay and then like they'll just move on because it was uh they didn't really realize it's something that they should be um uh, 
discomfort. Embarrassed by. Embarrassed <laughs> by. And just yeah. pointing that out, they'll be like, oh, okay. But, I, can we, I mean, if you have a title for this episode or at some point you want to do another episode specifically on this, may we use Jin Ho's statement, not cool, man. Like that is just, <laughs> it is just, it is right on target. Like yes. the tone, the sentiment, the, it's <laughs> just, it's it's just like right there where it's supposed to be and I feel like that that's a, a very powerful thing because that's because you know when you're in high school you're or like middle school you're trying to be cool so as soon as someone says oh not cool you're just like yeah, yeah. Sure, you know? <laughs> that's like the, the the automatic shutdown so I feel like it's more so we need to empower that statement of not cool so that it can help people realize that it is not okay yeah yeah and and I think again, people from within. So when I think about a group of guys, definitely another guy. Jin Ho, you got a lot of work to do for us, please. <laughs> oh, I do. I do, I do. Um, so I do have some questions that um, like students uh, from this um, organization had. Um, and uh, one of them was, um, how can we address health literacy of sexual and women's health amongst women in vulnerable populations? How do we educate these people? Yeah, so I think, um, I think it's really important that that question be shared with our campus services because, um, and, and that we get some more insight from the students about the nature of the education that's wanted. Too often, I think our educational materials are based, you know, they come from kind of on high and are designed to meet the needs of a very diverse, like very diverse settings, geographic areas, um, different populations that are attending a given school. And so I, I think it's gonna be really important uh, that this, I, I'd love to see the students come together with the, the services on campus to really um, vet the educational materials that they have. Because if this is how this student is feeling, then, then perhaps these educational materials are not, they're either not meeting the need or they're not getting into the hands of people in a way that is meaningful. Um, so that's my thought. And it's, but it's, I, I, I would say I put that back into the hands of your organization and your students and, and our local care facility. Um, and then there was another question where, um, uh, she was asking, what are some unconscious ways that we uphold the goal belief that what we and what we can yeah. do to unlearn these behaviors? Unlearn these behaviors. <laughs> okay. This is so, you know, this is a really hard question. Um, I think there are numerous, numerous ways we do that. Um, and, and because they're unconscious, I am probably, I have probably um, done them in the course of this conversation without knowing it. Um, I think that I have moved to a place where for me, because I can, you know, and I think everybody has to think about what this is for them, but I think it's when those unconscious biases cause harm to me or others, I, I, other people I see, then it is, then it is a, and I see the pattern of it. Then I will try to tackle that issue because tearing down the patriarchy I'm, uh, you know, you guys have more vitality than I do now. I'm, I'm 50. Um, so I'm probably d working on it piece by piece and not in a uh, revolutionary way. Um, 
And I think, I think people have to make their decisions about that. You know, do you want to do it in a revolutionary way? And, and to be honest with you in that, I, I don't think I am, I think there are better people on campus that can speak to that than me. Um, but in terms of trying to alter patriarchally based harms, um, what I often try to do is, and, and I do it as a researcher, is just look for those patterns. I really appreciate the opportunity that I can look for those patterns across national settings, across populations, so that we can see like, okay, this one is really big. So one example of that is um, uh, unfair uh, distribution of household labor um, that, you know, especially under the pandemic, where many of us have called these gender regressive policies under the pandemic, because by having the children at home and not at school and having school online and more people being in the home all day, you're basically increasing domestic labor and educational responsibilities for the household, um, oftentimes even more than what would otherwise be there, because what many families are doing is they're not, you know, uh, people that are living on their own, maybe in the city or they're coming back home. So the household is growing. And even if there is a, an increase uh, in, in taking some of those responsibilities across all members in the household, what we're finding is, is that level of increase in burden is always consistently greater for the women in the household. So that's been a, a pattern that we've been trying to really think about and tackle. So it's very specific and that's how I tend to approach it. Um, but you know, everybody has to find their way. Yeah. I think like data gives us power in a sense that politicians use data to support their argument to make these policy changes. And I think you're really uh, instrumental in giving them a groundwork to work on to say like, hey, we have a problem right here, let's address it. So they can, it'll be their, um, their creative thinking skills to address it in a nice manner. Thank you. Thank you, Jinho. We believe that we are part of supporting data-driven decision-making. So thank you. That is exactly our goal in our work. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen a lot of my cousins with their kids trying to work remotely and also attend to their toddlers or children. And also mm -hmm. it's, it's hard for them to manage it. So I think it, it is very important to address it and to be able to um, see what ways we can do to help and change it. Yes. Uh, um, Dr. Raj, I'm sorry, we have taken a long time. <laughs> it was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Jinho, you were so patient and sweet. And I guess Scarlett, you were as well, but weren't, I didn't even know it. You were just, you know, I cannot tell you, um, it's, it's a hard time in my life, but like seeing your faces and hearing your voices and learning what you're thinking and what you're doing like kind of getting a little weepy it's like yeah this is you know this is why my dad was like being a professor is such an amazing job it's just it's really very special to see students like changing the world and, and using their skills in these ways so thank you thank you for taking your time and like I know it has been a hard uh, month but you really appreciate it's your time <laughs> Yeah. Um, I ask one thing for people um, that are with me because I know people feel sad when they know that I'm sad. And so I, there is something that you both can do for me, which is um, call your parents. <laughs> if, and if you don't like your parents, which you're entitled to not like your parents, I don't know them. But if you don't like your parents, call someone who loves you and takes care of you and tell them you appreciate it. <laughs> yeah.
we like those supporting members around us are like what makes us go forward and then do all these adventurous things as a student yeah and then yeah. um let us also know when when you get the the scholarship up and running so that we can kind of spread the word um, oh my gosh that. no no i can do that now perfect oh my goodness. well we're so this is the deal it's still there's still donations but you guys can look for it and anybody who wants to like if you want to donate take advantage of it and um it's a good resource to have and i i really think that it would be good to share it in the podcast yep all right so. you are too kind and i am trying to show the chat but the chat's just really cool because i mean the oh wait hold on that's not all done so when i click on the link it says the application not found yeah the link seems to be uh, might be broken or okay I'll check I'll check on that um can I ask a favor of you can I just Facebook friend you or something yeah. <laughs> you-, <laughs> you get from both of us I'm very old or can I just like is does this let me share something okay wait help me young people I will right now um friend you so that uh yeah okay. well we'll find I you on Facebook do- We'll Thank you very much. All right, I will do it, and then I'll check on the. I'll I'll text my. I'll text my. Um, I'm so spoiled. They just. I mean, I'm so spoiled that uh, because it's at UCSD, and I the development people I work with them anyway. So I just I already have like I I have a good relationship. Are they here? Oh no. Okay. All right. I have to go. I'm so sorry. It's though. okay. No worries. Okay. No worries. Thank Bye. you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for your time, Dr. Rob. Oh my really God, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Take care. Surrounding yourself with those who support your endeavors is what helps you overcome adversity in life. Whether it's your parents or your loved ones, give them a call and say thank you. I know it may be awkward, but I'm sure they will appreciate it. In some instances, family members and friends are those who make your life more difficult. If you're looking for professional help, Dr. Raj sent us great resources, not only for UCSD students and San Diegans, but also for our listeners around the country. We want to say that we're here for you and love y'all. You're doing great and we're happy to have you as a listener. Please tune in for our next episode featuring California Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. Until then, hasta luego. Hearing Her Voice is brought to you by the Women's March San Diego at UCSD. The podcast is written and produced by Scarlett Lopez and Jin Ho Jung. Thank you, Dr. Anita Raj, for taking your time to chat with us today. Our design director is Melissa Wang. Our creative director is Suri Insunza. And our technical director is Catherine Cordova. To learn more about Women's March San Diego at UCSD, please visit our website on Linktree. Subscribe to Hearing Her Voice on Anchor app or wherever you listen to podcasts.